From Harvard University's Graduate School of Design, this is Talking Practice, a series asking renowned designers to provide an inside glimpse into what they do, why, and how they do it, exposing the ways in which their design imagination is articulated through practice. I'm Grace Law, Professor of Architecture and Chair of the Practice Platform. Thank you for listening. We are delighted to have with us today German architect Anna Herringer, known internationally for her rammed earth and bamboo projects. For her humanitarian architecture, Anna holds the honorary UNESCO Chair of Earth and Architecture Building Cultures and Sustainable Development. She currently has projects in Asia, Africa, and Europe. She is also the recipient of the Aga Khan Award for Architecture for her work in Bangladesh and is exhibiting at the 2018 Venice Biennale. Anna is teaching a studio at the GSD this semester entitled Architecture as a Tool to Improve Lives. Welcome, Anna. Thank you. I thought we could start by asking where your interest in mud as this raw material, how did it come into being? I was a development learner when I was 19 years old. I, I went to Bangladesh to just have an idea how people in a different part of the world are solving their daily challenges. And I've experienced the mud architecture firsthand. I mean, I was living in a mud village in Rotapur, and I just loved walking through these very narrow alleys. And, you know, the softness and warmth of this material really caught me. Did you start then very directly working with the community, or how did it begin? So I was just accompanying the development worker from that NGO. It was an NGO just run by Bangladeshi. It's called Deepshika. So I was just really learning what development work is about. And I got really passionate about especially rural development. But I also had this other passion for for designing, for architecture. And I didn't know how to combine these two passions that was always kind of in my mind. But then I got back from Bangladesh and I started studying architecture in Austria, in Linz. And... Throughout these years of studying, I got really frustrated because I thought I will never, ever be able to combine this passion for, you know, really development, making a change and the passion for designing. And I was lucky towards the end of my studies, there was an announcement that there would be a workshop um, for earth and architecture with Martin Rauch, who is right now also a partner for many projects that I'm doing. And... Then I got my hands in the material and really understood how it works in a structural way, in a tectonic way. And it was like, for me, the missing link. I felt very strongly that moment that this material really has something to do with my path, with my what I am supposed to, to be doing in this world. And it seems that, obviously, this raw material, it is ubiquitous. We find it everywhere. So it seems aligned so perfectly with your interests in humanitarian issues, in sustainability. And in many ways, you can tell that it really embodies your values. So when you look at the material, though, it seems that one of its essential qualities is that it needs to work in relationship to something that's very light. So in a way, I look at the work and I think, ah, this is a material that's very heavy and it needs its light counterpart in the bamboo. Could you tell me a little bit about the bamboo? Yeah, the bamboo is fascinating. It's what you said, it's bringing the lightness in, and the structure, the rhythm. So I love playing music as well. So for me, architecture is very connected to music and it's the rhythm for me, the bamboo. And what is also important for me are the textiles, the colors. 
that is almost in every project that comes as well. That brings another kind of you know, sensitiveness and poetry to this kind of material composition. So mud is good for pressure, but not for tension. And of course, the bamboo is good for tension. So this is the perfect counterpart or partner for that, as could be timber in Europe, for example. Right. Or any other parts. So you are confirming, in a way, what we see as the duet yes. between these very two quite different materials. And I believe that they need each other to create this sort of sensuality that I think is so present in your work and is so beautiful. Thank you. It's uh, in many ways very primal. So who is helping you with the bamboo side of things? Maybe you could describe the collaboration and how it works. Yeah, I was a scout when I was little and young, and we built a lot with raw timber logs that are also round. And we did a lot of lashing techniques and built towers and gates and whatever, also pretty high and large structures already. So I had trust in lashing techniques. And that was important because the literature that I found on bamboo at that time was more, you know, you had this kind of very technical and bolts and like joints that would never have been replicable by the people there. And the lashing techniques they have, and we just took it and improved it a bit. And I had my cousin especially involved in that, who is also a scout and a carpenter and a basket weaver. And this combination was just perfect because it, it's all about this knots and lashing. So he really understood the material perfectly. And then it got tested by engineers, by Christoph Tiegert, and and then it was further developed. But that came really well together. So you brought together then your cousin and this expertise in rammed earth and these two essential components. So how many people are on the team now? Uh, my team is pretty small. We are right now four in the office, but we are always collaborating. Like we have a wonderful contractor in Bangladesh who doesn't speak English, but it works with Bengali. And he's running now the site alone, which is really exciting for me that we don't have to be there on the site. And we just see how far we get in that way. And that, of course, the workers, they are trained in these techniques. And we know when we design that, you know, to really take into consideration what they are able to do also without us. And then I'm collaborating a lot with Martin Rau, who is this rammed earth expert, so in, in different projects like in Spain or in Austria, and keep my core team really small and agile so that we can really be very flexible and fast. And then we just really try to get the, the partners in so that we can scale up then. So in those early days, when you had to be on site more, I'm assuming, especially for the early projects in mm -hmm. Bangladesh. Describe maybe how you did that. How long was your involvement and your residency in those early conditions? In the beginning, I was there for four months, for six months, always on site, and I loved it. I mean, that was wonderful. We really became a family there. And of course, now, since I'm a mother, I can't be away for that long um, time anymore. And that's, of course, I mean, I would love to be there with the people. But it's also letting go a bit and gives more responsibility to the local team of craftsmen. And I think it's important for them also to grow. So it's natural. And I think one day I probably will be more free again. I will be back on the sites, because this is really what I enjoy a lot. It's like having my hands in the mud, in the dirt, and not just, you know, being behind the screen or just doing the models. It's really seeing the meaning 
of architecture and also how important the process is, is just gives a lot of happiness. It's wonderful to see that you really can make a change with the right process and the right building techniques and, of course, the right architecture. I think that's very evident when you see the work. You can tell that the community takes a great deal of pride in the buildings that have been created. So if you are now a bit more distant from the process because you're not there on site, what do the construction drawing sets look like? How do they differ? You know, typically architects will produce very thick drawing sets to describe every detail. Of course, these are sometimes better, sometimes worse depending on the time and the available support to do a kind of project. So for you, what does it look like, these construction drawing sets? How are you producing them? My last project there had almost no drawings <laughs> because I was there. I had sketches only, you know, with a pen, just hand drawings. And I was trying to be ahead, like day ahead. So right after the work on the site, I would sit down and sketch for the next day. And a lot of details just developed by mock-ups, one by one mock-ups on the site or really drawing in the mud in the ground. And now, of course, we have to do much more drawings, but it's also a lot of sketches. I just was in Bangladesh. And so we did a lot of sketches there and explained things. And that's the thing we need to draw more. But on the other hand, we're taking a lot of details that we had used for other projects so that we are sure that they understand how to do it and we don't have to bring that in again. Right. So that relies on certain kinds of repetition of knowledge and iterations and refinement. Yes, but we also bring in always a new kind of elements to enhance the innovation and the development. That's very interesting. So that now you can layer on new techniques and new thinking about the form. Yes, that's true. So before I was really more kind of box-like and straight walls and so on. And with the mud, you can also build in very curved ways because it's such a plastic material. So I'm going more in the architecture refinement. And especially this project now is a center for people with disabilities. And it's a little bit dancing. The walls are dancing. And we have the saying in Germany, if something is special, it's dancing out of the raw, out of the line. So it's kind of, we want to celebrate that being special is something beautiful, you know, being not the typical box is something good and it's something really worth showing and finding the beauty in it because this is what currently really is a bad situation in Bangladesh. People with disabilities are being hired away from the society and it's just not a topic, although there are really a lot of cases there. So to bring the awareness that everyone and, you know, being special is something beautiful. So I hope that this message is kind of coming through through the architecture. Yes, you bring up this notion of the elasticity or the plastic nature of the actual material mm -hmm. itself. And this is so interesting because it feels to me like the traction that you were able to get on the school project in Bangladesh relied on the precision of corners. And there's a sort of beauty to this idea that this really very amorphous blobby material that you think of when you envision mud or mm -hmm, earth right, in yes. general could become so crisp. And I think that surprise is what makes that project, you know, for me, as I look at it, I think that that's the moment of delight Mm -hmm. that the material can really take on a very new quality so that it wouldn't even be necessary ultimately to make the form or the shape idiosyncratic because just the nature of it working in contrast is actually shocking. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yes, I think in the beginning it was very important to show you can make straight 
edges and, and straight walls. And that was a total surprise to the workers as well, because they were, I mean, they see it as dirt. They just pile it out somehow, but that you give the care to this material and, you know, really try to do it in the most refined way. And through this, elevating the material was something really new and was needed to see the value of mud and not just as a dirt, but as a just an equal material to any other material as brick or concrete. So that was a very important step. But now they love the design. They saw the foundation and they were freaking out. They say, oh, wow, this is exciting. This is something new. So it's really... It's when you have only one, two materials in your hands that you can work with, then you really have to focus on the quality and the correct uh, character of this material. So the more you work with it, the more you get deeper and see the full range of possibilities. And that makes it super interesting for me to work with. You know, it, it's not like you come to the limits of something in a material and then you change the material. You know, you just take the new one. And But then you never get deep, you know, what you can really create out of the characteristics. So it's like getting to know the material better and better with every project that I'm doing. And that's fascinating and really to create the architectural language out of it. And also prove that this material can actually do a lot of things. This is what I'm really also fighting for because the image of modern earth architecture is very bad. So to prove that you can, that you have... Of course, certain limitations, but you also have a huge palette of resources, of patterns and shapes that you can use with it. That's fascinating for me. So what are the limits of mud then? You know, you are proving through the body of your work and the interest in form, the duality that you're working with in terms of these heavy and light materials. It has quite infinite capacity, but is there a limit to it? You know, obviously there's some structural considerations. You know, you mentioned earlier, obviously it's good in compression, but not in tension. So where are its limits? Where do you intuit the limits are? Mud is vulnerable towards water and towards, of course, then the climate. And for me, this parameter is that mud is different in every place in the world. So you can have, for example, I was used to rammed earth and I came to Bangladesh. I didn't see any stones. I couldn't find stones. So I had to change the technique, which has then again a certain character in its design and appearance. And then this is kind of a given parameter. And then there's another parameter, which is the local climate towards its modest vulnerable. So if I'm taking this vulnerability serious and embrace it and not try to, you know, change it through chemical aggregates or whatever, I'm creating parameters that makes the project really unique in a way, you know, tailored to that specific spot in the world. And that's for me fascinating. You know, it's not a, a project that I could place from China to, to Bangladesh or to Zimbabwe or whatever. So it's something that really emerges out of the local conditions, the local mud, the local climate, and that gives some authenticity that is really powerful. And I think that is also kind of needed because our approaches become more and more random kind of thing. You know, we have our style. We do the same thing in Dubai as we do in London. And this is becoming, I think, um, a really problem in terms of cultural identity because cultural identity was working with local materials and respecting the local climate and understanding how the material reacts to that climate. Well, I think you're striking at the very core of why your work is so fascinating at a time when architecture as a discipline faces faces essentially the challenges of globalization and the flattening effect of 
architecture displaced from its site, displaced from cultural conditions and or even the politics of space. So I think that the work that you are producing, in part because it's growing from the very nature of the place and literally physically growing from the place, is so unique. It's a kind of antidote to thinking about how architecture is displaced. And of course, architects are also practicing all over the world. Mm. So in some ways, that has seen huge benefits to the discipline, but also qualities of the flattening, yeah. the two-dimensionality of thinking of architecture in other places. So I think that that's fascinating. As you approach new projects, how are you managing the financing of these projects? Who is funding the support of this kind of work? In the beginning, it was really difficult. I was absolutely not known at all. I was just coming out of university, basically. But I had a good network of friends, and especially we have one tradition in Germany. Around the 6th of December, we have the Carol Singers campaign, so I did that <laughs> with my friends and we collected building budget, a, a big part of it by singing door to door. <laughs> so luckily I don't have to do that anymore. But no, it was difficult. And of course, I had also NGOs joining me in like Shanti um, Partnership Bangladesh, but it was very difficult. And it still is not easy, but it's better because people trust me. They know the funds are in good hands. And also companies are, are coming in to fund me. And yeah, that is becoming easier, but still it's a hassle. I mean, with every project, you have a weight on your shoulders, of course. But it's organizing a budget is time consuming. But I decided not to do competitions, almost not. I did two competitions in my life so far. And I rather invest this time into really starting projects from the very beginning and also including raising funds. And I would say that this is probably the same kind of time input that you give because, I mean, you're not winning every competition. So this time that is lost there, you could actually also create your own projects in, in a way. So that's an interesting expansion of the role that architects must play, the creation of your own projects, by investing very deliberately in methods of fundraising, yeah. in, of course, all the techniques that must come and expertise that must be integrated to actually realize the project in traditional terms, mm -hmm. what architects produce. But now you're also talking about the before life and the afterlife of the project. Who is taking care of the projects after you're gone? Yeah, that also has to be organized. And the last project with the Center for People with Disabilities, that was really nice. They saw the METI school in, in the papers and got interested and thought that makes sense to build like this in this climate. So they contacted me. Then someone was visiting the project, was really excited about it. Also, not just about the architecture, but about the NGO and the work of the NGO of Deepshika. So then they, Deepshika and the donors got into contact and they started to think of how they could help, you know, each other for starting a new project for people with disabilities. And then it was coming towards the end and, you know, oh, we need a new building. So why don't we do it in modern bamboo? And so this came the other way around. So and the nice thing is now that not only the building is sponsored, but as well, the program is sponsored. So that always has to be, of course, soft as well, how this is going to work out. So after the building is completed, and let's say you're not working very directly afterwards, is it the NGO that's often 
managing some of the aftercare and the maintenance of the projects and maintaining the life of the building. Yes, that works really well. So it's the NGO who is there, who is really taking nicely care. It's the students, you know, in the school or in the other school that are really taking care of it. And that works wonderful. I'm really impressed how well they take care of the buildings. What do you see are the challenges then in terms of replicating this process for other areas? Where do you see obstacles or potential problems? The problem is that as architects, engineers, we are not trained with this material. So there is a lot of fear, you know, no one knows how to calculate it. It's not rocket science. I mean, you can do blocks, test and test them in compression and it would easily work out. But you need an architect engineer for starting a construction building normally. So if there's a lack of, of experts, so this is a huge hindrance or this is a, a huge obstacle to implement more projects like this. And then, of course, you also need craftsmen. In Bangladesh, there are still a lot of people building in mud, so this is not such a big problem. And also, like, the lashing techniques have been copied a lot. So this would work out, but I think it's this fear of being vulnerable, this image is probably the most difficult part, that mud is dirty, is poor, that is the biggest obstacle. So to convince people that this is an equal material to any other material, plus it has this benefit that it's really healthy, it can really deal with this high humidity that is also in, in this kind of climate zones. And it is very stable if you just follow some basic rules like a good foundation, good roof, and it can be repaired easily. And of course, it's the only material that you can take from the ground and give it back to nature without any scars. And you can grow your own garden on it when you give it back. Plus, it can be recycled X times and you won't lose the quality of the material. That's fascinating to me. But still, the image is a huge problem. So I think the only thing that can change the image is really good design examples, really good architecture that prove that this is a wonderful material. Are there other materials that you imagine you might think about in the future that capture your imagination and that you dream about? I'm really... Other than mud? <laughs> no, I'm really in love with that material. <laughs> that is really... For me, it's much more than the material. And, and I've seen that also when we did this structure a couple of years ago in front of the GSD. It looked as concrete because clay in Boston is grey. But still people were passing by and, you know, touching the wall. And it's not something you would normally do walking around a, a city and touching the walls and, you know... This is just not what's normally happening. So I really believe there's something that touches our very archaic parts in our brain body. I don't know, but it's something, I mean, humankind grew up with this material. So And there's so many poems, so many, you know, myths, and also in the religious story, the origin often comes out of the earth. There's something very unique about this material, and there is still so much to explore about it. And I'm loyal to that, you know, I'm still fascinated. It doesn't stop in any way. And I feel the more I'm stressed and I'm having my hands in the mud, it's just I feel that it really grounds me. It feels really good. Well, you can really feel that joy and passion for it. Uh, I loved the clip in your TED Talk in which you showed some people actually petting the wall as they were walking by. And I thought that was really fascinating thing because, of course, that project was sited in front of the GSD. Yes. And the GSD is a monolith of concrete. Yeah. Nobody pets the walls yes, that's <laughs> on true. the exterior. So I thought that was really a very interesting statement 
about the magnetic quality of this material and also because it was cast in such a way that it was precise. Mm -hmm. So this material that, again, is so amorphous, being so crisp Mm -hmm. and tactile that people wanted to experiment with it and touch it. I did think that was a very interesting, fascinating moment in your video. Yeah, I love that video. It's always a big laughter when I show that in my talks. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's true with this preciseness of the material that is needed so that it's not looking that clumsy and that poor anymore, that you can really be precise in the shapes that is absolutely needed to work with this preciseness. For students and for practitioners who wish to think about architecture in the way that you are practicing, what is the path that they might take? I think it's important to also give an importance to manual work and not just to... I think when I see our architecture that is popping up all around the world, I have the feeling it's born too much from an intellectual point of view. But I think you also need, you know, the emotional part, you need the manual, the haptic part as well. And I think it's a... I'm designing full body. (laughs) It's like, you know, I'm designing with my hands in a very intuitive way with large clay models. So it's kind of 3D sketching on the clay. And then I have the feeling that it's really... It's with both hemispheres of the brain, you know. It's not just about arguing, about thinking. It also has to come out of more intuitive approach. And that also can be trained in a way that you really learn to trust your gut feelings. You always feel when something is right and, you know, to follow that. And for that, it needs a certain speed in design and, you know, that you get into flow. And that comes easy when you also use your hands in the design process. And I think it's a process we call clay storming. I developed that at ETH Zurich together with Martin Rauch. And it's really, for me, I must say, the projects that I'm doing, I'm almost all designing it in that way. And that goes really fast. And somehow it brings in this kind of surprising elements. You would not think about it when you really concentrate on your intellect and think about it. It's, you know, there are some elements coming in that are really floating out of my hands somehow in the material. You know, because it's so fast, you can cut things, you can reshape it so easily, you can add again. So it's not that you're sitting on a board, on a stereo cutter, whatever, you have to think already before what you want to cut. So this is a different process. And that helps a lot for designing Plus, I think we really need an understanding of craftsmanship again, that I really strongly believe. We need to know the materials we design with again. And that I see a lot with the students. They design more in computer programs than out of, you know, material understandings. And that makes projects ineconomic in a way, because, you know, of course you can force almost every shape in concrete and steel, but you need a lot of steel to have these overhangs and the shapes and whatever. And this is not good for the climate, definitely not. So to understand the material and where the limits of a material are is, of course, also helping in an economic way and, of course, also in an ecological way. So this kind of understanding, I think, needs to be trained more. And, you know, this practical part has to come in the curriculum again. So that combines both these artistic and craft process, intuitive process, with something that I think you're doing so, it almost seems very intuitive as well, but to create the metastructure to support this from the 
logistical and financial and organizational capacities. And so I think that that is because it seems to me that there are a lot of architects and artists who are practicing in the way that you might be practicing, but because of the other types of skill sets that you need to bring to bear on the project, they might only remain at the scale of something very small, maybe mm. not even public in terms of its public projects. Mm-hmm. So it does seem to me that it's this intimate process that you're referring to, in addition to having some ability to pull the kite strings together of many different organizations and funding sources and labor, questions of labor that you're doing so uniquely. And that maybe it's that combination, I think, that is so interesting. Because again, I feel like in the world today, we do have some of these practitioners who are practicing in a certain way, but it doesn't have any scalable potential. Yeah, I think scaling up is extremely necessary and we're really working on that also. I'm just writing a book on upscaling earth and architecture with Martin Rauch and Lindsay Lea Haue. So it's really important because with this climate change reality that we're facing right now, we need to upscale. And this is something we really need to train also our students that they are not you know, just ending up as working bees in architectural firms, but that they are also able to implement their own visions. There are so many students now that really want to do meaningful projects, also community-driven projects, and not just ending up in a developer's office. And I think that's very important that we teach this kind of techniques, how to raise funds, how to manage this kind of, you know, also interdisciplinary teams and so on, that they really are able to implement their own projects and visions. And for me, an important strategy in the beginning was that I said, okay, one third is my hard job, one third is my bread job, and the other third is, you know, simplifying my own life. So I was lucky that my bread job was always teaching, so that I love to do as well. But, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, you can also be you know, working as a waitress, whatever job, but something that enables you to do your hard job and you're not kind of have to give up on your ideas and philosophies and your vision. I think that's very important that you have really a good amount of time in your hand that you can work on following your path. So for me still now is, you know, architecture is, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm really lucky. I don't have to compromise in my philosophy and working philosophy in any of the projects. They're all following my dreams and my vision. But what enables that is also teaching. So this is still my bread job. And I'm still simplifying my life, not only to save money, but for example, with clothing, I just stopped going to regular clothes stores because I don't like the unfairness that is behind these kind of textiles. So I I learned tailoring myself and partly sewing my own clothes. I still like to go to second-hand shops because I don't feel guilty. In Bangladesh, I witness the situations of the garment workers, so I just can't buy these things anymore. And, of course, that also led to a new project that I'm doing with a tailor in my hometown and tailoring women in that village in Bangladesh where also the projects are, the architectural projects. We also started a project called Didi Textile that is right now exhibited at the Venice Biennale where we enable women to stay in the networks, in the villages, where they have comparatively lots of freedom. I mean, they have the social network. They can build their own houses with their hands, with the local resources. Children can romp around in the village and have a fantastic playground in the places there. So 
to keep the quality of life, we design textiles that are being able to be produced in a decentralized way. So without electricity, with a lot of hand stitching and that are also unique so that they can't be replaced by technologies. So in a way, this kind of simplifying my life also leads to surprisingly new paths in my work as well. And I think it's a good strategy. At least for me, it worked out well. Well, I think that's such a breath of fresh air here, especially on the East Coast. Everybody is moving very quickly and we're always working towards this next set of goals. So the life is very fast paced. And sometimes one doesn't have the ability to stop and think, I think, more critically about how one engages in the world. Anna, your studio at the GSD has a certain purpose and direction. Tell us what you're hoping to achieve with the students this semester. On one hand, I think it's important to really understand what architecture can do as a tool to improve lives, how powerful architecture can be. And I think that when you're really in a situation like a refugee camp, where it's such a basic need to have protection, I think then you also understand the power of it. And also where there's such a lack of material choices and economic power, you really also understand the meaning and the power of local materials. It forces you really to focus on the real essence of architecture. And I think that's, for me, Bangladesh was really always the biggest learning experience because I was free of all, you know, the ego and all this kind of, you know, trying to be special kind of thing. So you really have to focus on absolutely elementary notion of architecture. And on the same time, of course, we're trying to give ideas to really improve the lives there for the people in the camp. And I think with our studio trip there, we also had Martin Rauch with us. So we did some improvements and some mock-ups, how really structures can be improved, the bamboo structures and, and the plastic top structures with the mod. And I think that will have an impact because that's what people say. I mean, if it's proven right in the life, then it, of course, will spread this project. I'm, I'm really very positive that this will have an impact. In the face of challenges, what is the role of doubt in your practice? You had described scenarios in which you've had certain kinds of challenges. Tell me a little bit more about this. You know, when you're a young student, you have a lot of doubts in your own capacities, how to overcome this doubt. For me, it was like I got a B grade for the Métis school design, which was my diploma thesis. So I even got, you know, and then you think, oh, my God, I never built something. Am I worth, you know, is this project worth being implemented? Especially as a woman, I think this is something you never feel ready. You know, you feel you have to first, you have to learn a lot of stuff before you, you know, you're worth that. The project is being realized, but I think that's something you need to have trust in yourself. And this is really what I would like to, to tell the students that no matter, even if, you know, your teachers are telling you it's probably not worth it. It's something, you know, you have to believe in yourself. I mean, everyone has a calling, everyone has a purpose in life and then really trust it and go for it. And somehow things are developing in a way that... You know, they're opening doors all the time. So if you're on the right path, then doors are being opened. This is really a fascinating experience for me. Of course, it comes also with pressure and, of course, with doubts and with tears. But you always get up again and it's absolutely worthwhile. That is a very interesting subject onto itself. The question of doubt combined with persistence, mm -hmm. combined with emotional fortitude, 
to reflect on what you are doing and to have such deeply held belief that it can withstand the pressures of architecture, the challenges that one would face in any given project, and to see it through really does require a kind of exertion that is beyond, you know, a, let's say a nine-to-five approach to the world. So I think this is something, you know, if we're lucky to find it within ourselves, it's a really remarkable moment because mm. it, it can fuel you beyond the trials and tribulations of life, actually. So I think this is, in a way, it's a whole other subject that we really don't talk too much about. But if one can find that, the relationship between core value persistence and actually some healthy doubt. One yeah. has to have the yeah, doubt to absolutely. be critical. Absolutely. That is needed. But at the same time, it's also, you know, when you know that it's not just about you, but it has a purpose for many more, then you also feel the power for that. So, you know, I had to fight for myself. I'm not good in fighting for myself, but I know if I draw back with my doubts now, then there won't be a school. So, I just know that I have to go over my comfort zone and I have to go over my doubts because I know that a lot of things kind of depend on my decisions. And that gives me also, you know, to see the meaning and the purpose that gives also the energy that you need. So I believe with every challenge you get, you also get the energy um, to go over it. It's great advice. Anna, it's a remarkable opportunity to have you with us here at the GSD to think about the way in which you're combining a very deeply held set of philosophical values with the work that you are creating. And we're just delighted that you can be a part of our community and share this thinking with our students and with our faculty and with Harvard at large. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been a great morning to be inspired by what you do. I really enjoyed being here. Thank you. I'm Grace Law, and you've been listening to Talking Practice from the practice platform of Harvard University's Graduate School of Design. Today's episode was produced by Ronnie Serap and edited by Maggie Janik. Platform research and support was provided by Ji-Hun Ro, and sound engineering by Jeffrey Belade of Harvard University's Media Production Center. To hear other episodes in this series and to find out more about programs and events at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, visit us online at gsd.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>